Welcome to the See Me Now podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, here with my co-host, David Ludlam. And we are joined today by Colorado Mason University's Catherine Whiting, Assistant Professor of Physics. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. You were originally from Iowa. And, you know, when I think physics, I automatically, just like over my head, I was not... Um, focused on science in, in university. and um, But I've always, you know, looked up at the stars and found awe and wonder. Um, is that kind of how you grew up in Iowa? You Is that how you got started? Yeah, definitely. Um, I grew up in a fairly big city, but I was kind of on the edge of town. There were like literally cornfields in my backyard. And um, when I was really young, I had a lot of growing pains and my dad would take me outside at night to kind of calm me down and I would just look up at the stars and there was not a lot of light pollution. So I could really see a lot of stars. And I think that kind of sparked my interest in physics and astronomy. Uh, you know, I was uh, recently at my parents' house and I was looking at this uh, DVD collection that my mom had, Carl Sagan. Mm. And I, I grew up on that stuff and Stephen Hawking books laying around the house. And, um, and so I, I had a, 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 that exposure at an early age and, you know, beyond the awe that, that Kelsey referenced, I think everyone experiences like, why is it, why do you think it's important beyond just that, the awe to, to, to want to pursue what's up in the sky? And why is it an, so, so important for humans to, 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 to stretch ourselves, to learn about what, what the cosmos is all about? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, first of all, Carl Sagan was like my childhood idol. <laughs> that uh, Cosmos series got me really into astronomy. But that's something that I ask my astronomy students at the beginning of every semester. It's like, why should we study astronomy? Um, like, what does it have to do with your life, you know? Um, and I think, well, that sense of awe is definitely important. And I always show them the an image of Saturn's rings, and there's this tiny little dot. And I ask them, what is that dot? And it's Earth. And... Um, so one of the Cassini spacecraft actually turned around and took a picture of the Earth. And just to think that every human being who's ever lived, lived out their lives in this tiny little dot. And it kind of gives you a sense of perspective that, like, we've all, we're all in this together. And we need to, if we want to, like, be a space traveling uh, species, we need to come together. Um, but in a more practical sense, too, just... Studying astronomy is kind of an, a fun way to learn science. Um, and also, like, astronomy has led to a lot of um, important technological advancements. Um, a lot of medical imaging technology has been created by astronomers. Um, like, the FedEx uh, uh, computer systems that control, you know, shipping uh, have, was created by astronomers. So there's a lot of practical applications to studying astronomy as well. You had a project in middle school that asked the, the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you found an astronomer. And I think of kids today, you know, we're all, and not even just kids, we're all just looking down at our phones constantly. And I wonder if that question gets asked today, if there are as many students thinking um, about astronomy and that they want to be an astronomer and that this whole world exists outside of just, yeah, what we're, what we're doing right here and now. Can you talk about what it was like growing up, knowing that you were going to go down this path so early? Yeah, um, I think it it was an advantage for me because I knew, like, what path I needed to take. And I could actually spend my time, you know, taking all the math classes I needed to, taking all the science classes. And 
um, kind of honing my interest and in knowing like what specialty I wanted to pursue. Um, so that that was helpful, knowing that I kn- knew I wanted to do this from a long time ago. Um, but I don't think that if somebody decided, you know, later in life that they wanted to study astronomy, that that is impossible to do. So I think it's something that I've seen a lot of colleagues who have uh, chosen the field much later. And in fact, I myself studied astronomy from an early age, but then I actually left um, and studied theoretical physics for about a decade or so and and just now coming back into the field. And you you started off in particle physics, is that right? In some sense, yes. I studied uh, st- uh, string theory, which is very theoretical version. Uh, I didn't work on experimental particle physics, though. Yeah. What made you come back? You see, you left. What was the inspiration for coming back? So, well, I've always been interested in astronomy. It was just that I like really loved theoretical work, and so I just kind of got led along a different path for a while. But actually, coming back to um, CMU getting a job here, we have a kind of a unique uh, partnership with the Air Force Academy. And there's a Grand Mesa Observatory, which is about 30 miles from um, Grand Junction. And I had the opportunity to teach astronomy here. I'm actually replacing a former professor who taught astronomy. And so that was sort of one of the reasons why I wanted to come here was that I could, first of all, teach astronomy again and um, start to do research with um, the telescopes that we have here. And so that's sort of what led me back towards astronomy. Well, like speaking of telescopes and teaching, Mm -hmm. I recently was listening to Neil Tyson talk about the James Webb telescope and how it's literally a time machine, allowing us to see back in time, you know, Mm -hmm. billions of of years. And and as when you think about the complexity of the things that you've studied and researched, uh, he's one of the smartest guys in the world, but he's using these simple metaphors. Do you find yourself having to use very elementary metaphors to explain things to people like Kelsey and I, who all we know about the stars is that they're bright. Um, Yes, I think so. Um, But not as much as I had to when I was doing theoretical physics to try. I find myself, it's much, much easier to explain my research and the new discoveries that are happening in astronomy than it was studying very theoretical, very high mathematical uh, work. So it's actually, I, I really enjoy talking about, especially that you mentioned the James Webb um, is like the perfect timing for teaching because I can actually incorporate the new discoveries into my lectures and get students really excited about the topics. For your postdoctorate, you landed in South Africa. Mm-hmm. What took you there and what did you find and why'd you come back? <laughs> <laughs> Good questions. Well, um, what took me there was a job, and I had an opportunity to do continued research uh, that was related to my PhD work. And I've always had a sense of adventure. I lived in Germany when I was in high school as an exchange student, and so I kind of had that bug that I wanted to get out of the country and explore more of the world. So that was like the perfect opportunity for me to do that. And um, yeah, living in South Africa was a great experience. I was there for three years, um, that I think was a good amount of time to really feel like I understood the culture um, and had a full experience there. But I only, that my position there was temporary by nature um, because postdoctoral work is usually two or three year positions. Um, so I had to come back and I wanted to as well just to get back into teaching. 
And sorry if I missed a bit. What, what what were you studying when you were in South Africa? You're in that position. I was studying um, string theory. Uh, I was looking at um, Einstein's equations, so it was kind of like a modification of general relativity uh, to higher dimensions. So I was, I was working on the computer a lot. <laughs> okay. See, I imagine you know you're you're in this room with a bunch of other scientists, and you're you know, doing your own part of the research and you're collaborating and then maybe, yeah, you're on the computer, then maybe you're going outside and looking up like how, yeah, what does this look like in an everyday life? Yeah. So, well, I think in uh, my new research in astronomy is a little bit different than what it would look like when I was a postdoc, uh, which was very kind of isolating. I was very just sitting in front of a computer. A lot of the collaboration was done remotely. Um, but it also did involve a lot of like talking with colleagues um, and meetings. But I think astronomy research has been a lot more um, interactive, a lot more. It's still a lot of sitting in front of the computer <laughs> uh, because astronomers don't usually actually just look through telescopes. We actually have cameras that take images for us and then we go analyze them. So it involves a lot of uh, data processing, um, a lot of data analysis. But what I love about this research that I'm doing now is I can involve students uh, pretty easily in the research. And so a lot of my time is actually interacting with students. And you've mentioned string theory a couple times. And I think if you could break it down of what that actually is, because it's obviously been a, a large part of your life mm -hmm. um, or was a large part of your life for a while. Sure. Yeah. So string theory is a, an idea, I guess it's a model of how we describe the most fundamental objects in the universe. So the, you know, traditionally in particle physics, we treat the electrons, for example, as points. Uh, they don't have any physical dimension to them. They're just a point in space and they have properties, but, um, but we just kind of approximate them as point particles. But um, string theory goes a little bit beyond that and says, well, maybe actually all fundamental particles are one-dimensional strings and they can be open or closed and their interactions can lead to the different particles that we see. So it's kind of trying to be like a fundamental picture of what everything is made of. Um, and one thing that it solves is a problem in theoretical physics that we know um, gravity works really well on large scales. We can, can describe planets, galaxies, etc. Um, and then if we look on really small scales, we've got something called quantum field theory, which describes particles really well, but we can't combine them together. But the thing about string theory is it just immediately solves all those problems because um, it's sort of, it's trying to be a quantum field theory, but you get gravity for free. Um, so it tries to unify all the fundamental forces we know of in the universe. Is studying what you study scary? And sometimes, and what I mean by that is like, I think this notion that you had the big bang and that the universe is expanding at a certain rate, but at some point it would contract. And then now we know that it's expanding faster and faster. And like, there's no explanations for these things that are perfect, but like thinking about like what that means to a, a human being who's so fragile. And like the, when you think about the things you think about and what we don't know, is it ever like, is it mind blowing for you in the same way that it is for us? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Scary in many ways. <laughs> but yeah, I think it does. Um, it, it is scary in the fact that like right now in my classes, I'm talking about dark matter and dark energy. We know they we have pretty good clues. They exist. We have absolutely no idea what they are. And so that's kind of scary. The thought that we, we think we know a lot about matter. Um, physics is trying to explain 
you know, how the everything works. But yet, 95% of matter and energy in the universe, we'd have no idea what it is. Um, so that's that's can be scary in some sense. <laughs> yes. That's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. You know, given your background, when you hear about Elon Musk and space travel, or if you put on Interstellar and you're watching this, uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, are you engrossed or are you just like, what are these guys doing? This is not, this is not right. <laughs> I think it's exciting. Um, like me personally, I more would rather be on the ground studying the sky. Um, I, I would at some point love to travel to space, um, but it's not like a passion of mine. Um, I think we can learn a lot from being here on, on Earth. Um, but I, I do commend people who try to, um, you know, travel and try to make the technology work because we saw as we humans traveled to the moon, like that was very powerful experience for humanity. And I think that's, you know, if we continue to push the boundaries and go, say, to Mars and tra- continue traveling, sending humans there, uh, even though it's maybe not the best scientific use of our time, I think it's very powerful for us just to give us the inspiration to keep going. You mentioned a lot of your research. It's, you know, you're taking these pictures and then you're looking at them, analyzing them, interpreting the data. Are you concerned at all with the amount of spacecraft that's going in out there? I mean, yes. the air or the space pollution, if you will. Yes, that's a big concern for astronomers. Um, right now, I think there's something like a f- uh, on the order of tens of thousands of satellites. And the thing is that they reflect light from the sun. And so when astronomers try to take images of the sky, um, if a satellite goes through the image, it can completely ruin your image. Um, there's some techniques, imaging techniques you can use to try to negate that, but um, SpaceX, um, a lot of other companies are planning for hundreds of thousands of new satellites to be launched. And so that's basically going to ruin ground-based astronomy um, in the future if we continue at that rate. And in addition to that, if there's any sort of collision in space between these satellites, it can produce a debris um, that could potentially ruin our chances of ever leaving Earth just because um, space debris travels extremely fast and it can destroy any sort of rocket or satellite we would try to send. That, That would be ironic if we couldn't go to Mars because we put our own garbage was blocking the way. (laughs) (laughs) But earlier you you mentioned that it may not be the most practical scientific endeavor, but there's perhaps deeper, more profound reasons we'd want to travel in space. And if I were to stereotype people who study what you study and have the minds that can grapple with these type of abstractions, I would say that, you you know, very analytical, very linear brain and not necessarily in the artistic realm of things. But yet what you do is that sort of on the precipice of what the human spirit calls us to explore. Do you find the people mm-hmm. that you work with and that who do what you do and who are involved in astrophysics and, astro- and astronomy are, are, are very much wired to that, that human spirit of exploration and where art converges with science and all the things that maybe people don't think about when they think about mm-hmm. string theory? I think we do. It's, it's not something that we face every day, as Oslin, you think about like on a day-to-day basis, but it is something that kind of is in the back of my mind at least. Um, and like my mother is an artist and she's always kind of put that artistic side in me and trying to think holistically and um, kind of merge different fields of study and different you know aspects of our humanity into science. So I definitely 
um, appreciate that. But it's not, I think day to day, our lives as scientists are a lot of very technical, you know, trying to just get the software to work or, you know, uh, a lot of uh, detail oriented work. But I think those, you kind of have to have both in order to make progress. Okay. What research are you doing now? I know you wanted to come back um, to the States and, and teach and really get students involved uh, in research. And you had said that, you know, you didn't feel like you were contributing to humanity, you know, sitting isolated at a computer, whereas now you're passing on um, all the knowledge that you have and getting students really uh, involved in having them fall in love with with space. What are you guys working on? Yeah, excellent question. So um, we're using the telescopes, which are at the Grand Mesa Observatory, to um, search for exoplanets. So these are planets that orbit stars other than our own. And um, what it does is we we look for um, stars and we image them over the course of, say, a night, hopefully longer. Eventually we will get more data. And you look for um, the dimming of the light from the star as a planet passes in front. Um, So it's basically kind of like an eclipse, uh, but at a much, much farther distance. Um, and so we, we look for, you know, the amount of dip in brightness of the star will tell you how big the planet is and whether it's like an Earth-like planet or maybe a Jupiter-sized planet. Um, so this this involves, you know, a lot of imaging, a lot of uh, analyzing of the images. But it's a really good project for students to get involved in because it doesn't require a lot of background knowledge in astronomy. Um, and it's pretty exciting because we have the potential to discover new planets. Have you found any? Um, we've so far we've uh, confirmed we, we've looked at a planet that was known to exist, and we've seen that it transited the star. So we've actually seen the planet evidence that the planet is there. Um, we are now moving towards trying to confirm um, the existence of planets that we think exist. So there's a lot of um, satellites uh, right now test satellite um, is scanning the sky for looking for stars to dim in brightness and so if it finds one that sort of dims it hasn't been confirmed that that's a planet because it could be you know another star eclipsing the star um, or it could be like just a a big failed star that we call a brown dwarf Uh, so we need ground-based telescopes to go and look at those stars and see if we can confirm that there's actually a planet orbiting that star and so that's kind of what we're actually working on right now. Uh, we, we're trying to get data for that. Eventually, maybe we'll try to c- discover our own exoplanet, but that takes a lot of time because you have to search the skies for long periods of time to try to see if you can find just a tiny little dip in the brightness of a star. Well, like from, as a, from the marketing team's perspective, if you discover a planet, what's the process for naming it? Because we clearly want to <laughs> name it like the Maverick. So how do, you, how do you do that? What's <laughs> that the process for naming a new planet if you find it? So usually the planet is named after the star name. And then with the letter, a little lowercase letter, like the first planet in that system would be a little b. And then the second discovered planet, regardless of whether it's closer or farther away from the star, would be c, etc. Um, and then the name of the star can be, uh, it varies. It, usually it's based on the telescope that kind of flagged that star as, as a potential candidate. No matter so, then. Well, we can always give it our own name. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it can have its enough. official name and then a, a named name. I like that. Which is often true in astronomy. <laughs> that is interesting, though, because I'm thinking some years back, you know, reading about Kepler 22b. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, where'd you come up with this name? 
And it, it's actually, yes. It's, yeah, Kepler is the name of a space telescope that was searching for exoplanets. And then 22, I'm not exactly sure what the number means, but the B means the planet and not the star. Yeah, I just always think, what a weird name. But yeah, I guess, of course, it has a, there's a reason to it, right? Yeah, <laughs> Astronomers are terrible at naming things. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a curveball. You know, astronomy, astrology. What are your thoughts on astrology? Okay, well, I actually have a, like a whole s little section in my astronomy classes about astrology oh. uh, because astrology and astronomy used to be the same. Astrology actually means the study of the stars. Astronomy actually means star naming. Um, and astrology and kind of made sense in you know ancient times that you know motions of and positions of planets in the sky. Um, could maybe potentially have some influence on events that happen on Earth, which kind of could make sense because, I mean, cycles of the moon, like phases of the moon, sort of correlated with different patterns that happened on Earth. But we can actually put astrology to the scientific test. Um, and we've done that many, many times, and it's failed. Um, the, the predictions made by astrology have not past the scientific test. They haven't done better than pure chance. So your confidence level in my horoscope is like very low. Pretty low. Yeah. Uh, we do yeah. a little experiment in my classes and usually um, the predictions of astrology, I give my students um, a list of what their sign is supposed to be without telling them which sign it's supposed to correspond to. And, you know, a few students usually say that they actually, their personality match or whatever actually match their sign. But, um, but for the most part, it fails. And I actually tell my students that your sign is actually off um, by about a month because the precession of Earth's rotation axis has shifted the position of the sun in the sky, which is what determines what your sign is. So whatever you think you are, you're actually a month off. So, so you're what probably are you? no, what are you, You're ruining it for <laughs> me. What are you? <laughs> what am I? Yeah. I'm a Capricorn. So what would that make Kelsey then if it's a month off? I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I don't believe I'd it. You have to whole identity Zodiac signs. I have another curveball for you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I was, uh, I posted this thing on social media. It was a sort of silly little idea I was having. That, but it, it's, if I, I'll get the details wrong and you can make them right. But the idea is that um, what makes up Earth is the remnants of stars that supernova exploded somewhere else and came rushing together and then through the forces of the things you study amalgamated mm -hmm. into a planet and all the things on it. I was just thinking about this amazing idea that like, well, like two human beings then might share potentially the same, be made up of the same stardust that came from another galaxy at some point in time that's not, we can't fathom. Do you ever, as somebody who actually understands the details, do you ever find mm -hmm. yourself daydreaming about things like that? Or is that? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I think I love the quote by Carl Sagan, that we are made of star stuff. And it's literally true. I think some people interpret the quote in different ways. But when astronomers say that, they literally mean that your human bodies are made mostly of like oxygen, hydrogen, carbon, etc. And those were all created in a star either through fusion in the core of the star or the death of a, a supermassive star that went supernova that took all of those heavy elements. In fact, in a very split second is where all the heavier elements besides iron are actually created. And then that, the, the shockwave from that explosion brings those heavy elements to other parts of the galaxy. 
So we, like, we think of ourselves as kind of living in the organic world, but there's really no difference between the trust, like the extraterrestrial world and the organic world. They're like the same thing. That's like really yeah. hard to put your mind around for if you don't. Yeah, we are yeah. made of the universe. It's just the things that we are made of are pretty rare. Most of the universe is hydrogen and helium. Um, so we are kind of a rare aspect of the universe, but we are made of everything else in the universe. So we are special. <laughs> I was going to say, you make <laughs> yes. me feel special. I like this. We're not just floating around on a little dot in the middle of nowhere. We're special. <laughs> well, Dr. Catherine Whiting, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the See Me Now podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.